So, as you can tell, I am not the pastors. What? <laughs> Hold on. He says, yeah. There we go. Now we're in business. So, the last time I preached um, was probably, I think, almost a year ago. And I went for like an hour. And we didn't get out till like 12:15, and I thought there's no way the pastor can ask me to do this again. And then the following Sunday, this lady came up to me and she was watching it online, and she said that was such a good message, and and we shouldn't be contained by time, you know. And I said, okay, so we'll go for an hour and a half today. <laughs> just, just kidding. So I just have a few few words to say, but first of all, let's just get our Bibles in the air. And this is my Bible. I can have what it says I can have. I can do what it says I can do. And I am who it says I am. Father, we just thank you for this day, Lord. We just thank you for the opportunities to be in your house. Father, I just pray that the ears be open and hearts uh, be soft to receive the word that you have given me, Lord God. And I just ask, Father, that I speak only what you want me to speak. These things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we live in an absolute crazy world. And so, um, a few months ago... Some of you know that my, my mom passed away. And so when I went back there, and she lives in California, so I went back to California. It's just crazy back there. And the day before I was supposed to leave, I go to Costco to get some gas, and I'm filling up my mom's car and everything. And so I hear this, like, lady scream behind me. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, here we go. And so I turn around, and I don't know what she did, but gas was like spraying all over the place. So I'm like, let me just get my gas and get out of here. So, <laughs> so we go, I'm driving down the road and I see the same lady at the stoplight. And I look over and then there's this big truck. You know those trucks that get behind you and they honk and it kind of stalls you? So she's there and she lights up this cigarette. And this honk comes and it, she gets startled, and she drops a cigarette, and her arm catches on fire. And I'm like, holy moly. So I roll the window down. I'm like, pull over. So she gets startled, so she just steps on the gas, and she's going, and, I ro and she rolls her window down. She starts putting her arm out the window, and that just, like, inflames it even. I'm like, pull over, pull over. So she pulls over, and you know those moments where you wish a cop was there, but they're never there? Well, this wasn't one of those moments. So she pulls over, I get out, and I help get, you know, put her arm out. And the cop rolls up, and the cop's like, I saw the whole thing. And um, since the cop starts putting her in cuffs, and the lady's like, why are you arresting me? And he says, well, you're brandishing a firearm. You have my permission to use that story. <laughs> yeah. 
anyway, anyway, so the world is a crazy place. But as Solomon said, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is new. So I titled this message, For Such a Time as This. And this comes from the book of Esther. And when I think about the book of Esther, it's one of my favorite VeggieTale movies. You know, and so, you know, the king got, the queen got bashed, got, you know, put away because she wouldn't make him a sandwich. But in reality, I'll give you a three-minute synopsis, you know, cliff notes. So for those young people that don't know what cliff notes are, there's like this yellow book that you would go and buy, and it's supposed to give you the summary of the story that you were supposed to read in class, but you didn't read, and you thought you'd read the cliff notes version. And I found out that cliff notes, the answers were never in the quiz, you know? So, but anyway, so King uh, Xerxes, this his third year in his reign, and he throws this lavish party for all the uppity-ups. And so this party goes on every day for six months. He's partying. So think of it now. We're in April. We're mid-April. So think mid-October is when this party ended. So after that, he throws another party for the people for seven days. And he puts a decree out there. There is no limit on the amount of drinking you can do. So everyone is just having a good old time. And at the same time, the Queen Vashti, she was having her own party for her, her ladies and everything. So on the last day, the king's all, the Bible says he was high in spirit. So he's high in spirits, and he calls for the queen because apparently she's you know, drop-dead gorgeous, and he wants to show her off and parade her in front of all his people. So he sends his eunuch to go get her, and the queen's people says, uh-uh-uh, don't let him talk to you like that. So she doesn't come. And so the king starts, you know, he gets angry, so he, you know, consults with his wise men, and they said, just send her away. Because if the rest of the kingdom hears that your wife won't obey what you're doing, then all the women and all the kingdom won't obey their husbands no more. So send her away. So he sends her away. So he wants a new queen. So four years later, he's lonely, and he wants another queen. So Mordecai has a niece that he adopted at his own daughter named Esther. So we get there, and... Um, Esther becomes queen, and Mordecai becomes part of the royal guard, if you will. And so he finds out about this plot to kill the king. So he tells Esther, and Esther tells the king and gives credit to Mordecai. So he gets elevated. So Haman, the king's right-hand man, is, hates Mordecai because he won't bow to him when he comes by. And so he's so enraged by this thing that he puts out this decree that not only does he want to kill Mordecai, but he wants to kill all the Jews. So Mordecai is in mourning about this whole thing. And so Esther, 
sends his eunuch out to find out why is he at the gate and burlap mourning. So so he goes out and she tells him or he tells the eunuch why. And so he says to Esther, you need to go to the king and, and tell the king what's going on. So Esther replies back, I can't go to the king because he hasn't called for me and I can get killed. So then we pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 4 of Esther. And Mordecai sends his reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet as time, in a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise in some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? And so about a month or so ago, I was at the pastor's house to pick up Sarah, and I was just going to drop in and out get her and leave. And we just started talking, and I don't know how the conversation came up, but I said, have you ever thought about of all the places you could have been born, you were born in this country? And then I said, think about it, of all, not only of all the places, but of all the time in history you could have been born, you were born now. And just ask yourself, why? So when you think about a baseball team, you know, you have your leadoff hitter, then you have your second, third, and then your fourth hitter is your cleanup. And your fourth hitter, your cleanup batter, is the one that you know can hit the ball and bring in some runs. And so I consider it like God has placed us all here at this time because we are his cleanup hitters. And... He needed to put the best in place at this time for what is about to happen. And so let's think about it. Every decision you have made in your life has led you to be in this seat today. And so I just want to talk about a couple of similarities between the time of Esther and now. And so... The first kind of correlation I want to talk about is the relationship between Mordecai and Haman. So Mordecai, in my opinion, is kind of like the church. You know, we're not bowing down to nobody, to no man. We only bow down to God. And Haman, who is equivalent of the world or the government hates that and so he puts out a decree to kill all the Jews so he comes with the full force of the government to kill God's people and so you might say well how is that happening now the government hasn't put out any decrees to kill Christians or anything like that they haven't but what they have done if you look at those parents, for example, that have gone to school boards to protest, to stand up for what is right, they found the FBI knocking on their door. And the government has labeled them domestic terrorists. 
And when you have that label, it opens up a world of powers that the government now can do to track you and do all that stuff to you. So then I came across this article, and it is titled, Three Warning Signs That the FBI Might Label You a Radical Traditional Christian. And this is a memo that was signed off at the highest levels of the DOJ. And point number one, interest in homeschooling is a sign that you're a radical Christian. So you're in trouble, Jordan. So if you don't like what the public schools are teaching your kids and you want to pull them out and do your own school and to raise them up the way you want them to be raised up, you are considered radical. In the mid-1960s, there was a Supreme Court case that removed the Ten Commandments from the school. And one of the arguments that the ACLU used, they said, if the Ten Commandments are visible, then the kids might see them. And if they see them, they might read them. And if they read them, they might follow them. And that was the reasoning that they used as something that's not in the Constitution of separation of church and state. But that case removed the Ten Commandments from the schools in the mid-60s. And so if you look at every statistic, things have gone downhill since then. And so let's just review for just for a second what those Ten Commandments are. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall make you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your mother and your father. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. So those are the things that those that were against it did not want your kids reading. And so since the 60s, we have a whole generation of people that have been raised in a godless society. And I heard it said that we are now living in a post-Judeo-Christian country. And I thought, nah, there's no way. So a couple Fridays ago, I'm talking to my HR director about this project we're working on. And it happened to be Good Friday. And the person that we need some information from was in Europe, in London. And so they had Good Friday off. And I said, isn't it kind of ironic that we're the Christian nation, but every other nation in the world has Good Friday off but us? And he paused for a second. And I thought, mm, I thought I would get some kind of confirmation. Paused for a second. And he said, you know, I, I think they should do away with all religious holidays. I think that's the problem, and even Thanksgiving. And so it was kind of a shock, but this is the world that we're dealing with at the moment. So one of our founding fathers, John Adams, he famously said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. 
it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And so the founding fathers knew that you needed to be a moral and religious people to be able to be governed by a constitution that gives you so many freedoms. How different would society be today had that decision by the Supreme Court been different? It is just it's amazingly how different it would be. So point number two, meeting every Sunday with other people who want good lives. So that's all of you. Everybody that goes to church every Sunday. Now we're all considered a radical Christian. There's this church, this big church in California during the lockdowns, they refused to close. And now they're in the middle of a lawsuit right now with the federal government because the FBI planted informants in the church. And so they were going to church services, to prayer meetings, to Bible studies, all to inform on those that were going to the church that A, they weren't masked up, B, they weren't having you know six feet or whatever, all that they weren't following the rules that were put down by the government. And so that's how far our government has come. And we who live in this country, we, we're been blessed in that we've never really faced persecution for what we believe in, not like other countries. But slowly but surely, you know, it's coming. But we just have to be prepared. And the last point number three that they say makes you a radical, traditional Christian. And this, everything revolves around this last one. That you value life, organic marriage, and the sexes. And so if you look at everything that is going on in society today revolves around those three things. To kill your baby, to open up marriage to whomever you want, and to make multiple genders. And it's no secret on that one because that is the basis for what God has started everything. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them the direction to multiply. Two men and two women together can multiply. A man and a woman can multiply. And he said, there is a man and a woman. So when you destroy that, you destroy that foundation, then anything goes from there. So the next one I'd like to talk about is the interaction between Mordecai and Esther. So Mordecai's reply was, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from someplace else, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. So you ask yourself, what was Esther afraid of? So two points. One, 
Esther feared revealing her true identity to the king. And so a lot of times, and, and I'll just speak to myself, I've been in situations at work where people are talking about stuff, but I don't really voice. I mean, they know that I go to church, but I don't really, I'm not like a Jesus freak making everything loud and proud and known. And especially at, when I was at Starbucks, talk about being in the lion's den. <laughs> Everywhere you go, you know, those that had an ulterior belief system than to mine would say it loud and proud. And they just assumed that you believe the same thing. And that's interesting how Christians, we don't do the same thing. We don't, produce, we don't shout out loud and proud, and, and who cares if they believe it or not, because they don't care. They just assume. Why don't we assume that they believe what we believe, yeah. right? Amen. And just be proud about it yeah. and just assume. But we like to not, especially me, I'm not confrontational, and we don't want to make everyone, anyone feel uncomfortable. We would rather feel uncomfortable more than letting someone else feel uncomfortable. But when you speak the truth, that's what makes people feel uncomfortable. It's not you. It's what you are saying is what's making them feel uncomfortable. The second thing is that she didn't want to go before the king without being summoned. So back in that day, you didn't just show up in front of the king or you would be killed. You had to be asked and then when you came, he had to, you know, put out his golden scepter to say that you were accepted. And a lot of times, like now, Jesus said, let us come boldly to the throne room of grace that we may receive mercy in our time of need. And so we need to not have that fear to come before the Lord and say, Lord, give me strength. Give me whatever you need. And we often, we often don't want to do it because of, you know, what God might say, or I'm not worthy enough, but you are worthy enough. So in John 15, 18 through 20, it says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love, would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you're no longer part of the world. I choose you to come out of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than its master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. And if they hadn't listened to me, they would have listened to you. And I heard this phrase, this guy said this statement, and it was so profound. I just had to to write it out, said, good cannot be accomplished without courage. It is the rarest of human traits. There are many nice people. There are many kind people. There are many honest people. But there are very few courageous people. Good depends on people being courageous. And we are living in a day where we need to be courageous. In Acts chapter 18, verse 9 and 10 says, <clears throat> this is Paul, 
One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. And so back in the day when it wasn't like, I guess, kosher, you had this phrase, coming out of the closet. And it had this connotation that if, if you were gay, you came out of the closet. But it's time for us to step out of our closet. So two things will happen when you step out of the closet. One, those that hate you will find you, and those that love you will find you. And so if you don't want to feel like you're alone, step out of the closet, and you will be amazed how many people who agree with you, who have the same beliefs that you have, will show up and be by your side. And when you experience some of those good days, you also have some of those bad days. And when you have those bad days, what are you going to do? And how are you going to respond? And it reminded me of this story. So I'll tell you a few sports stories because there's a lot you can, at least I gleam out of sports sense in life. <clears throat> but my senior year in college, um, so I played football in college, and so my senior year, actually my junior year, they fired the head coach and the coaching staff, except for one coach who survived. And when they hired the new head coach, they told him, the only two games we want you to win is against University of Idaho and Boise State. That's it. So that year, the first year, we play this against Boise State, and we win the game partly to this trick play that we did, and it ended up on George Michael's sports machine. And back in the day, that was like the place you went when you watched sports highlights, and so it was a really big deal. So it ends up on, on that show that night, on Sunday night, and so we're just like all on top of the world. So the following week, we have to go to Cedar Falls, play Northern Iowa, who at the time was ranked number four in the country. And it just so happened that their quarterback at the time was Kurt Warner. And if you know who Kurt Warner is, he's now in the Hall of Fame. So we go and play this team. We're high. We're feeling good. You know, we just beat our rival for the first time in I don't know how many years. So, and it all started on the kickoff. So, they kick off the ball, and our return guy just gets blown up. And it's one of those hits where the entire stadium just goes, ooh. So, on Monday, when we're watching the, we're in the special teams meeting room, all 30 guys in there go, ooh, and then they keep running it back like five times, and everyone's laughing after that, you know, so the entire room's laughing. So anyway, we get to halftime, and it's 41 to nothing. We were just getting crushed, and they went for it on every fourth down. And when you go in at halftime, you really have to dig deep on your character because we're past the point of this game getting out of hand, right? It can really get out of hand in the second half if you come back. 
And so I don't remember what all was said, but as an athlete, you have that desire, that competitiveness, that I am not going to give up and I am going to give it my all. And the second half ended up, the score ended up being 49 to 11, but we all scored them 11 to 8 in the second half. And I, and I say that story because when people don't accept your message, how are you going to react? Are you going to curl up in a little ball and say, I'm not going to do it no more? It's too scary and they didn't like it. Or are you going to stand up, dig deep, and say, there's a higher purpose than just me? And so Jesus died on a cross, not just for him, but for us. And we receive that. And somebody sacrificed and shared Jesus with you. And so your responsibility is to share Jesus with somebody else. And that is one of the responsibilities of knowing the word and having his salvation. We have a responsibility not just to hold it to ourselves, but to share it out to the world. Because the message that we carry is life or death. Not just for a short time, but for all eternity. So Matthew 10, 14 says, If any household or town refuses to welcome you or listen to you through your message, shake its dust from your feet as you leave. Say one of the phrases I love is, oh, well, you know, you got to adopt that, oh, well, and you move on to the next. The position I played um, in college was corner. And so the one thing that I was told when I first started playing that position was you have to have thick skin and a short memory because you are out there on an island and everyone can see you. And people who don't even know anything about the game of football knows when you made a mistake because it's just out in the open. And so uh, I remember the very first game I played in college. It was like second game of our season or whatever. So freshman year. And the coach puts me in. And so the other team knows that, you know, this is a freshman. So the very first play, they go deep. So I get beat deep on the very first play. And, I mean, it was a great catch. I mean, the guy had to lay out for it. We're both laying out for it. He catches the ball. There's there nothing I could have done about it. But the fact of the matter is I get beat deep. And everybody in the stadium can see it, right? And they go down and score. And I, we come off the sideline. I put the headphones on. The position coach says, son, what are you doing out there? You know, and, and some other colorful language, right? <laughs> but I could have that moment just like curled up and just quit, you know, and just didn't want to play it anymore. But by the end of the year, I was the starting corner. 
And so you just have to have that fight and that grit and that drive to say, I'm, even though someone rejected what I said, I'm going to move on and give it to someone else that wants to hear it. So what must we do in the light of this? We must get back to the basics spiritually. So what did Esther do? She told Mordecai to tell the people to go back and fast for three days. Don't drink any water. I'm going to do the same thing. And so it's time for us to put on our big boy and big girl pants and get into the fight. Because for the longest time, the church has been silent. And we thought, oh, someone else is going to do it. And now we're in the position that we're in. And we're wondering, how did we get here? It's because we were silent and we let the opponent take ground with zero pushback. So in Romans 10.14 says, How then shall they call on him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And so there, God is calling us all to be preachers. And you don't have to be a preacher where you're standing up here preaching to people. You just have to go out and share the world, share Jesus to the world, in your world. Your world is different than my world. And so you have to share Jesus wherever you're at. And don't get into that trap of comparing yourself to someone else. Because I'm not the pastors. You know, I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not whomever, right? I am me. So I must share the gospel according to the gifts and the talents that God has given me. And so it reminded me of, um, so I coached soccer from the littlest of kids all the way up through high school and at the state team level and all this. So they have coaching licenses that you get, and it starts with F, and it goes all the way up to A. And so an F is your parent that's never done anything before, doesn't even know about soccer, so they give you the basics. And so when you go from C to B, one of the differences is you get evaluated on how you play. And so at these clinics, there are all types of players here. There's like former national team players, there's national team coaches, there's, I mean, people have played the game for a long time. And so I get out on the field and I'm a little bit intimidated because I'm not like this guy. I've never played at that level before. But what I found out was they're not comparing the way I play to this guy. They're comparing the way I play to can I play the game. That's how I'm being graded. And that is how God is grading you. Can you play the game? Can you get out there and do it? That's all he cares. So you don't have to be like somebody else because he made each and every one of us unique. 
and the way you deliver a message to someone else is unique in itself. Different the way I would do it. Different the way anyone else would do it. And the way you do it will meet that person right where they are. So 2 Corinthians 4.3 says, If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. And when I read this, it just said, you know what? We share the good news within these four walls. But what good is that doing? We need to be sharing the the good news out to the world where Satan is the God of this world. So we need to be out there penetrating that. You know, I have this vision of Satan just sitting down on, on his seat over the world, watching everything going on, and he's just happy that the church is just silent. And um, one of the teams that I coached, is the last club team that I coached, we were down at this tournament in Oregon, and these tournaments, you play a game on Friday, two on Saturday, one on Sunday, and if you make the championship game, you have a second. So you're possibly playing five games over three days. And so we're on Saturday afternoon. It's like 95 degrees outside. It's super hot. It's our second game. We're playing at like 3 in the afternoon, and we're playing this club that's up in Redmond called Crossfire. So they're a nationally known club. Their top levels won the national championship a few times. So we're playing this crossfire team, and their coach, you always kind of know if they're a good coach because they'll sit down on the bench, and they won't really say much. They'll just sit there and watch their players play. So they cut the game time down five minutes from what we normally play just so we can get all the games in it. Then they cut it down another five minutes because they would take a five-minute break because it was so hot. So in the first half, we're losing three to nothing. And... The girls come off, they're kind of dejected, and I say, look, we're just going to put high pressure on them and see how they react. So the second half, we just went total high pressure. And the funny thing about it, the high pressure made them make mistakes. And in the span of 10, 15 minutes, we scored three goals and tied the game, basically off of their mistakes. And then the game was over. My assistant coach said to me, he said, all I wanted to see was that coach stand up, which she did. And so the analogy is we need to start putting pressure on the devil. And the only way we put pressure on the devil is we go high pressure. We get out there. We make our voices known. And pretty soon he's going to stand up. And when we put pressure on, we're going to see them make mistakes. And we see that now because they are just wide open, blatant about what they believe. It's no longer hidden anymore. So we don't have to say, oh, I don't see that. You see it as plain as day. And now it's time for us to take the offensive with the word. And so you might be thinking, how can I just go out and, and... Going to the world is so big. 
You know, you just have to break it down into smaller parts. And so when you look at a soccer game, you just see 22 people just running around, you know, and there's not much to it. But in actuality, the game is really basically four parts. One versus one, two versus one, three versus two, and four versus four. And so as a coach, coaching younger kids, you have to teach the game to break it down into smaller parts. And so our part is one-on-one. -on -one. And so we need to up our one-on-one -on -one game. And that one-on-one -on -one game is basically, I have a neighbor, I have a friend, I'm sharing. And the way that they teach you how you run practices is you go from individual to group to team. That's how you run the practice. So every practice should be structured the same way. So our, in relation, would be our one-on-ones that we have with our individuals. That's our individual time. And then we get into these group times. And there's a method to my madness when I, when I come up with these men's events. And they're all done outside of the church. So the snowshoeing, the skeet shooting, the hiking. It's so that you can invite guys that don't come to church, that don't feel threatened, and they get relationships built. So that's your group. And then you get to your team. So then they eventually will come to church, and then we have our team time to where we all can start loving on that, that new person that came, sharing the word, sharing the love of Jesus. And that's how we should operate. But first starts with one-on-one. -on -one. We have to be able to open our mouth and have courage to share Jesus. And even once you get to your one-on-one, -on -one, you go to your two-on-one. So you get your other friend that's in church with you, and you invite your unsaved friend. And then you both can build relationships. And then as long as they know someone, they will come. And so we just have to do that. And in Matthew 10, 16, it says, Now remember, it is I who send you out, even though you feel vulnerable as lambs going into a pack of wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes, yet as harmless as doves. And so it is Jesus that is sending us out. And he knows we're vulnerable. We know we have this feeling. We're saying, being shrewd, be shrewd. And when you're shrewd, to me, it means just be strategic on what you're doing. Right? Have a plan. Like, you know, snowshoeing or skeet shooting, it's a plan. There's a plan behind the whole thing. You know, it's not just randomly you want to... It's, we want to do it to have, you know, build the guys in the church, but there's a plan bigger than just the guys in the church, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So, wow, time flies. <laughs> so I'm going to learn how to cut <laughs> and cut some stuff out. <clears throat> So I heard this quote from uh, this author called G.K. Chesterton, and he says, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. 
And so if you believe in anything, then you will let the world define who you are. So if you go on any kind of social media, all you'll see is just angry people because the world has defined who they are. And it'd be like, it'd be like I'm introduced to Tracy, but to everyone else that I introduce him to, I call him James. And then everyone knows him as James, but that's not who he is. So he'll start to get mad. And so like the world is calling these people something, God said, that's not who you are. And so you're actually angry because the world is calling you something that God has not intended you to be. And so if you saw yourself as an image bearer of God, then you would be a step closer towards contentment, a step closer to happiness. But if you let the world define you instead of God, you're going to have a lot of unhappiness building up to a lot of anger. But society through the media, through social media, and everywhere you look, it's a constant drumbeat of the world hates you. You're not an bear, image bearer of God. You're gay. You're lesbian. You're transgender. You're a minor attracted person. As Christians, our message should always be, you have a spiritual problem that only Jesus Christ can fix. And we are in a spiritual battle. And the chaos in young people's lives today stem from the belief in this craziness and a lack of belief in God and God's word that provides wisdom. If it is visible, they will read it. If they read it, they will follow it. The one verse that really stands out is Psalms 1611, which says, you will show me the path in life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that's what we need to be sharing. That's the identity we need to give all these people out there. Because the identity that the world gives you is temporary because it will go away when the world goes away. And then the only label you will have after that is condemned. But the label that God gives you will last for eternity. So I want to close with this. The church has no choice but to get into the fight. And I'm not talking about a physical fight. We need to be read up. We need to be prayed up. And we need to be ready to jump into that battle. You are here 
for such a time as this. And remember that this battle that we're facing is already won. And so I leave you with this last story. So maybe you've heard about these four people in church. They're named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. God had an important job to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. God is calling all of us to be Esthers because we were born for such a time as this. Stand. Thank you, Father, for this word. You know, and those here or those I'm watching online, you might be wondering, why am I so angry? Have I let the world define who I am? But if you're tired of being angry, if you are ready to take on a new identity, an identity that will last for an eternity, an identity that says, I am a child of God. I am the bride of Christ. I am the head and not the tail. I am an overcomer. Then raise your hand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Father, we just thank you for those that have made that decision. We thank you, Father, that you are with us no matter what we do or where we go. And we ask, Father, that you will just give us the strength, the courage to step out and be your hands your feet, and your voice. For what you have given us to do is so important, so valuable. There is nothing else in the universe that is more important. And Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this word. We ask that you bless everyone in this house. And we say, Amen.